everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Jonathan B., welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Excited for our conversation. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, we were connected by our mutual friend, Jimmy Song, and the timing was really good because I had just started the first episode on this book by Rene Girard, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Uh, very fascinating book, one that challenges your worldview uh, in many ways. And I understand you're quite, uh, I don't know if you call yourself an expert or not, but you've definitely become very familiar with Girard and his work and these texts. So I'm very excited to talk to you because I'm still struggling to get my head around what all of this means. Um, and so maybe we could just start with that, a little bit of your backstory and how you got introduced to Gerard and his work, and then we'll dive into the book. Right. Um, yeah, happy to. Uh, so my name is Jonathan. I was born and raised, uh, between Beijing. Well, well, I was born only in Beijing, but I was raised between Beijing and Vancouver. Um, I, I grew up trained in competitive math. I was a big gamer, so got into coding quite a young age. Got a full ride to Columbia to study computer science, where I focused mostly on uh, working in a VR lab as well as some AI coursework. Uh, and, and you know, one of the problems of a ambitious teenager being in one of these schools is um, you tend to get caught up in these forces of, uh, of vanity. And 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 one of them, those forces, 
um, in, in CS is, is like this Zuckerberg complex to see who can drop out the fastest. Um, so that's what I did my freshman spring, which is pretty darn quick. I dropped out, um, attempted to, to build a company that went, that went up in flames, so to speak. And that was a really terrifying defeat for me because I had obviously failed multiple times before. Um, but th those failures were external failures. You know, I, I really wanted something. I gave it my best. I, I couldn't do it. But that the company was an internal failure, that it was clear I didn't really want to do the company. But yet I felt this immense desire, this immense pull towards it. And so really Girard, as well as some other philosophies, you know, as, as, as far east as, uh, as Buddhism, really was the um, self-psychoanalysis, -psycho if you will, of me trying to debug my own system and figure out what went wrong. And so the, the, the analogy I like to make is um, Girard is my uh, Virgil. Uh, the analogy there being, you know, what, what Virgil was to Dante, someone who leads you out of hell and through purgatory. Um, that analogy is further apt because Gerard is famous or infamous for not giving many prescriptive solutions. So he thinks the world's just going to end. And he thinks the probably the best thing you and I can do is to withdraw from the world like Holder Lynn. And so but we digress. Maybe we'll get there today. Um, I actually have a very special relationship with the, the book you held in your hand, Things Hidden Since Foundation of the World. That was my first foray, believe it or not, into philosophy. <laughs> and like I discussed with you before we started recording, it's both the best and the worst way to get into Girard. Uh, it's the worst way to get into Girard because you're, you're thrown all these concepts all at once. And it's the best way because it covers three out of the four main uh, Girardian areas of interest. Uh, book one, I believe, is called uh, on Anthropology. Book two is on his theology, his apologetic of Christianity, and book three is on his, what he's called, interdividual psychology. Um, and the only really, I think, big Girardian uh, a domain there that is missing is probably eschatology, the end of the world. And you can get that by reading Battling to the End, one of his final major works. Um, so yeah, I, I was I became fascinated with Girard, ended up reading uh, anything by him that I could uh, get my hands on. Um, and because it was mostly Gerard and the Buddhists who were leading me out of my own sort of uh, existential uh, angst, I ended up writing a 50,000 word uh, manuscript trying to put these two uh, religious traditions and philosophical traditions in dialogue. And, and that's available on my website for people who are having trouble falling asleep. Uh, and then me and my good friend, uh, David Perel, we also made a, a seven part lecture series um, to go through the entirety of or, or the major strokes of Gerard's theory psychology, anthropology, theology, his critique of modernity, and eventually eschatology, the end of the world, which should be available um, when, when this episode drops around mid-December 2022. That is really cool. Um, so where do you start uh, with this particular book, The Best and Worst Way to Get Introduced to Girardian Philosophy? It definitely felt that way for me that I was suddenly thrust into this world of these strange terms and um you know he's using them i guess off the cuff because he's perhaps drawing on his work from yeah x there's so there's some that's right presumed knowledge perhaps for the uh for the readers of the book how do you if you're just if some your elevator pitching the gerard thesis contained in this book things hidden how do you approach that because i found it to be very right overwhelming but not exactly easy to compress into a uh, simple language yeah so i would probably start in reverse order i, I whenever i try to teach gerard or, or talk to people about gerard and this this is how the lecture series is structured i always start from psychology 
because his psychology is the first, the most uh, interesting and relatable to many people and the most accessible. Um, and I'll give you a short spiel, but it, it's also the foundation of his social theory and his eschatology. So without really understanding his psychology in book three and things hidden, I think people are really going to struggle and have many doubts about book one and especially book two, his defense of Christianity. So I would say Gerard's core psychological insight is this, that there is two species of human desires. You know, one species he calls metaphysical desire, and the other species, and this is not pronounced in the book, is called physical desire. So metaphysical desire is a desire for identity, what an object says about me, whereas physical desire is a desire for the object itself, in plain language, what the object can do for me or the utility of the object. So let me give you a few examples. You know, I can have sex, I can pursue sex out of metaphysical desire. And what would that be? Well, that would be the psychology of the Don Juan or the coquette, right? Someone who... I want to have sex with this person because of what having sex with such a person says about me. But I can also pursue sex out of physical desire, right? And that would be for uh, pleasure or maybe feelings of immediate intimacy. But there's, but this cuts across, Gerard would argue, the entirety of the human uh, realm of objects that we desire. This could be a job, right? Investment banking, mostly metaphysical desire because the physical desire, it's not that quite enjoyable being pulled up at, at 2 a.m. To, to, to fill in spreadsheets. Um, one of the reasons I like, I like philosophy, by the way, is that philosophy has so little prestige is that everyone who's studying it, um, it was really mostly there for its sake, but I digress. And so Gerard's core thesis is really to tease out this insight, this insight that he thinks is hidden from us, that a great, if not majority of the reason we desire and pursue things is about what objects say about us and not what they can do for us. Interesting. So the what an object says about us, this presumably is us engaging in some form of reputation management or we're trying to yeah, yeah. face to the world. For That's the right intuition. But but I, I would say we need to push a bit deeper than that, because mm -hmm. to think about it as, you know, me managing my my reputation still assumes that we're, you know, individuals and, you know, simply one thing that I care about is my reputation out there. Gerard would say something even stronger. He says we're not really individuals. He, he is what we call, if you remember from book three, interdividuals. And what he means by that is our core desires themselves are interpenetrated by others. So it's not like, here, here's a thought experiment for you. It's not like, um, you know, if I, if I grew up in a society that valued, let's say, gladiatorial honor or, or let's say collecting pineapples, right? For some reason, you grew up in a society that the prestige was collecting pineapples. If everyone in the, in the society vanished right then and there, a, a person merely con uh, uh, concerned with the reputation would stop collecting pineapples. But Gerard's point is that uh, this person would actually still want to collect pineapples, even though there's, there's no one else to, quote unquote, police his reputation. So do you see this sort of minute distinction I'm trying to draw? It actually goes a bit a layer deeper than merely managing external reputations. It's about how our intrinsic desires, what we think of as our own desires, what we want is actually penetrated uh, themselves externally. Yes, that does make sense. And this also perhaps speaks to the common divide like i'm thinking of iron rand which often talks about the collective versus the individual. right but there's not a bright line in reality right we we are yeah that's right we are participating with culture and those around us and that there's a feedback loop right like we are shaping the culture as the culture in turn shapes us to some extent 
So I guess what I'm hearing you say is that the desires others have actually manifest themselves in you as well, right? Just by virtue of being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's the really interesting thing about Gerard is um, it, it's not like a reputational management, right? Oh, I see everyone liking pineapples. I'll go get ripe pineapples. It's more internal. It's yeah. that their desire is imbued in me. Right. And that's why, uh, you know, it's called mimetic desire, right? Because, because the, the next step after Gerard delineates these two desires, physical, metaphysical desire, is he asks, well, so in metaphysical desire, we desire to be a certain type of person, right? It's, he calls it the, the, the desire to be, if you recall from things hidden. The, and Gerard thinks we all have a desire to exist in great measure, right? Think about Achilles, think about a, a, you know, a great general or, or even something a bit more mundane, like a, a, a very well-liked coworker. Mm -hmm. And Gerard's question is, well, how do we gain this elusive ideal of being, right? Because it's very abstract, it exists in great measure. Mm -hmm. And Gerard says, we simply look around us to aspiring models. Again, this could be like all the way from a celebrity to just your older brother who you respect. And we take on their desires as our own. Mm. And that their desires are imbued within us. It doesn't go through this external route of reputation. It goes through this internal route of making us desire those mm. things in and of themselves. It's fascinating. And so on the, I, I guess we should unpack real quick the word mimetic. I think we've done this before, but it's... Uh is it a greek origin i think but it's where we get words like mime uh imitate mimic so it's just this yeah this that gerard's talking about is really people almost like all human interaction correct me if i'm wrong here is basically mimetic right we're we're mirroring one another all the time and then your personality ends up being a collage or a composition of all these interactions you've had across time yeah yeah running. yeah you're running a, your personality is a program that's comprised of all these interactions you've had across time historically. And, and obviously we put more emphasis on those that we admire, right? This is the feeling of awe as you seek to imitate someone that you have a, an affinity for them in some respects. Uh, is that a, approximately correct on, on mimesis or what would you add there? That's, that's exactly right. And I'll, I'll just make a few addendums there. Um, the first one is the metaphor that I like to, to give for mimesis is actually what uh, I think it was Hume that gave for sympathy. Okay, so sympathy, so you know, feeling compassion, uh, sharing the sufferings of someone you see. And he said, um, sympathy traffic uh, operates almost like violin strings closely wound up together. So if you have two violin strings or two guitar strings, you flick one, a similar vibration frequency crosses to the other. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I really like this metaphor for a few reasons. The first reason is that it shows that this mimesis, this imitation, is a natural tendency, right? Like you said, maybe there's a natural baseline of mimesis when we just hang around certain people um, that, that we tend to ingest their values, right? You see how certain social groups and certain cliques, maybe in high school and college, you know, have a specific place they like to go to, a specific word that, that contains a meaning to, that is completely uh, a meaningless to outsiders. Um, but I also like this metaphor because it still does preserve human agency to some extent, right? Because as any, you know, guitarist worth, worth their money knows, you can, you can hold the first string steady when you pluck the second string, or you can flick it at a different frequency. I, as clearly as you can tell, I don't play any string in this in, instruments. Um, and so the, the first caveat I'll make is, yes, that's right. But Gerard doesn't, Gerard thinks that, that there is still a layer of agency upon this, that, that we do have some agency. Now, there are certain scenarios where mimesis gets really inflamed and we no longer have that agency. But, you know, as a basis, we do have that agency. I'll make two more comments here. Um, the second one is 
I think it, it's probably, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's a wrong understanding of Girard, but it's certainly an uninteresting understanding of Girard um, to think that he's just talking about us directly copying things. You know, I see man walk off cliff, I walk off cliff. Um, I think the much more interesting way of interpreting Girard is uh, uh, reading him as saying that there is a normative imitation or there is an imitation on the layer of values if that makes sense. So it's not just, you know, you know, I see you drive your car and turn left. I immediately turn, turn, turn left. Um, it's more like, oh, I see Robert. Robert's a cool, cool guy. I see a lot of people like him. I want to be like Robert. What does Robert do? Robert hosts podcasts. Podcasts gain attention. Maybe I don't directly host a podcast, but maybe I can, I don't know, streak in the World Cup and gain attention that way. You see, it's a much more fundamental uh, layer of imitation. It's about the imitation of values. And the, the last thing that I'll say here is that you know, mimesis operates both positively and negatively. If you remember in Things Hidden, book three, he talks about the negative phase of mimesis. And this, in some sense, just flows naturally from what we talked about before. If the positive phase of mimesis that we've already talked about is to uh, obtain an object associated with the model with a heightened degree of being, you simply just need to turn that logic on its head. You want to distance yourself away from objects associated with models with a deficiency of being. Right in the high school, we both want to you know sit where the cool kids want to sit, but we also we want to make sure you know we, we never get associated with with uh, you know with the kids who are considered social outcasts. So so it really uh, changes what we think about uh, as an individual action. Fascinating. I'm reminded too. Uh, you've heard of probably mirror neurons in the brain. Yes. 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 We see someone break their leg or in incur some type of injury you almost you can feel it right if you've ever watched maybe a, a football sports game, right sports exactly leg or some injury you feel it right that's that's the mirror neurons activating and i having studied people like um mandelbrot and you know who brought up about the the science of fractals and all of this I'm a big believer in that, that things are kind of self-similar at different layers. So whatever's going on inside the brain, we probably have some version of that going on in social reality. So this sounds kind of like that, like individuals behaving somewhat like mirror neurons for one another, that they're That's, you know, not yeah. quickly mm -hmm. imitating one another, like you said, right, right. but you're noticing if someone's succeeding across a certain performative dimension that you too want to succeed, then you might right. just start to imitate them, to copy them. Right, right, a right. lot of things, right? It's like fashion. Um, I, I don't know. Dating, dating, right? You can find a previously uninteresting prospect interesting when suddenly an, an attractive comp competitor desires them or, or sort of they become more off the market, so to speak, right? Immediately, yeah. you have an increase in your desire. And I really like, sorry to interrupt you, but I was so excited to jump in about what you said about mirror neurons because that, that's actually one of the bases, one of the, bi you know, Gerard doesn't really make his arguments, as you can tell, and things hidden through empirical facts, mm -hmm. right? He gives a much more hermeneutical proof. He's, he's like, you know, just humor me for now. Just, just, just give me this, take, you know, follow me on this path I'm going to take you and let me show you what this theory can do. Like that, that's, that's how he convinces people. But of the few times he does give sort of a, a more empirical, factual, scientific defense, he does point to mirror neurons, um, right? These neurons that, as he correctly identified, fire both when we do something as well as when we see someone do, do something or, 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 and so it, that lends to the idea, I haven't investigated this properly, but it lends to the idea that there's a real connection uh, between uh, observing and doing, right? Hence mimesis. 
Yes, and there, I wonder, you mentioned mimesis can become inflamed. And so I wonder right. if this is, well, the inflammation of mimesis would be like, maybe it's related to the Nietzsche madness of crowds, where you say that madness is rare in an individual, but when it comes to crowds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it, is it people mirroring one another? And then if, if things get too rowdy or crazy that it can actually, right. I, I don't know, it can become too frenetic or too, yeah, too yeah. all at once. And then people can go into the madness of crowds, perhaps. That's a great, um, this is a, this is a massive topic. So, so I'll see what, what, what I can do to pick it apart. Um, I, I would say probably the first cut we can think about this is inflammation on the individual level. And then there's social circumstances of inflammation. So we'll start with the individual level. Um, basically, I think the strength of metaphysical desire, right? This is the bad desire that, that we don't really want. This is the desire to be like a kind of snobbish uh, sort of social prestige seeking desire, uh, to put it in colloquial terms. The strength of this, this, this desire, um, one of the things is the delta between how, how, high, how heightened an ideal you're after versus how shitty you feel about yourself. So Gerard makes this comment about how we desire things ever the more after things re reject us or when we experience loss, we have a much stronger desire for that thing. And it, it's, it's the same logic of why the thirsty man des desires water more. It's because you, you're put down in your own social conception that that ideal, that delta, right? Even if the ideal remains the same, you have a, uh, a stronger, stronger desire for it. So that's, that's in a way where it can be um, inflamed on the individual scale. Um, on, the, on the collective scale, Gerard basically identifies different um, social arrangements as um, blocking the spread or accelerating the threat of meta, threat, uh, the spread, so sorry, of uh, metaphysical desire. So he basically thinks that there's two things that can block the rapid spread of metaphysical desire. What he calls uh, essentially social distance or, or physical temporal distance, right? So um, we'll talk about the, the latter because it's less interesting and much easier to understand. There was a time where most people in the world didn't really see anyone beyond what they saw in their village, right? They didn't travel that far. There certainly was no mass communication. And so we can't, I can't mediate your desires if I'm not even physically temporally exposed to you. But of course, with modern uh, communication as well as transportation technologies, that has gone by the wayside. And I think a very underappreciated sociological fact is that today, you know, uh, the, the farmer, let's say in, in, in a third world country can just open up Instagram and see Dan Belzerian and his lifestyle. The other part, much more interesting, is Gerard thinks that social differences can also block desires from spreading. Um, and by social differences, Gerard basically thinks about all the types of differences that make someone think, okay, I do not deserve what he deserves. Okay, so, so what are some of these differences? Well, they could be gender differences, right? In antiquity, there are strict expectations different for the genders. Um, there could be guild lineages, right? Like son, like we're just a, we're just in a guild of a I don't know blacksmith or something like that. Uh, it could be caste systems. Now, Gerard sees the fact that modernity, with his conception of equality, as breaking down of all of these differences, 
and in some sense, he thinks that's a terrific thing. In fact, he, he considers it to be a, a core of the Christian message, the breaking down of these false differences and inequality. But he also considers that to be an apocalyptic development. Because there, right, what do we tell children in the West today? You can be anything you want to be. And I think Alain de Baton had this great analysis of how this idea of meritocracy in, 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 uh, in and of itself also imbues moral guilt to, to, to the failure, right? So if, if you and I were in a caste class and we were both low caste and, and we were you know, up to nothing when we were in our 50s, 60s, there's, there's very little responsibility for us. That's our expectation. But in modernity, right, sort of everyone has to have an excuse for, for why they're not the president of the United States of America. I'm exaggerating there, but I'm just painting a picture. And so, however, that's not to say that there are no differences left, social differences left in modernity. For example, I've noticed how when I was in college, a freshman would be much more threatened when another freshman got a prestigious internship. But if a sophomore got that internship, they would be like, oh, you know, like they got another year on me, right? Or if that other freshman came from a really rich family, maybe that's cope, but you can think, you know, we're fundamentally different in essence, right? His dad helped him land that job. And so as a result, because of this expansion of equality, it's not to say there's no differences, but that there's much less uh, systematic differences. And Gerard sees desire spreading much more, much more rapidly. Um, and, and so that, that's a social condition for mimetic inflammation. That's super interesting. So we have these, and this gets into his thesis more deeply, but we have these containers, I guess, that are meant to actually. Yes, right, right. Peace, it's right. a patronizing and deceitful container, but it's a container nonetheless. Yeah, patronizing and but but useful at the same time if it's yeah integrity. That's right. Society. That's right. Um, That's obviously right. Not doesn't it's not consistent with our current normative structure, which is also. Nope. It's a post-Christ thing, right? This idea that we're all equal in some moral sense, or we have that's right. the quality of souls is something that was written about post-Christ. That um, I'm blending in some insights here from another book, uh, Inventing the Individual, which mm. I enjoy. It just makes the point that prior to Christ, we didn't really have the conception of the individual. It was more about the family. And then right. post-Christ... Um, you know, like the writings of Paul, that we're all one in Christ, that we actually sort of develop private property rights and an individual right. basis for organizing society. But not not to get off on that tangent, um, it's, it's really fascinating to think how these things are formed. So I guess we should probably double click on a couple of these terms here. We use these terms objects mm. and models. Mm. And another interesting thing to me that I got from the book was it doesn't seem like it's only individuals that we're imitating. It can mm. also be imitating these uh, characters in mythology or stories, right? Right, like, right, right, right. That's read, right. Like one of the things that has really improved my life is just trying to imitate Christ. Like just read about him. Right, right. And then, Are you Christian? Are you Christian or? or... Well, I don't like the question because I don't know. I, you know, I consider myself as someone trying to disciple themselves to Christ. But when people huh. say like, do you believe? My, right. my pushback is like, well, I don't believe in the word belief, actually. I think it's a very right word. Well, do you think he rose from the dead? Well, this is a nuanced answer for me, too, because I don't know that we've established the line between living and non-living. So when right, you say about Christ right. rising from the dead, like, well, in one sense, he's eternal and immortal in human affairs, right? Right, right, right. Um, 
very embedded in the mythological architecture that we're anyways i i took i took you off tracks so keep on asking yeah. your question the, basically that is we need to what are objects what are models and then yeah the other piece to this and i'm not you tell me where i'm wrong or not but it seems like it's not just right, living individuals right. yep. living yep. individual yep. that's engaging in a mesis of like course. when i read of the course. bible and i read about christ i can choose to emulate of course the actual course were written about of him and so that serves a purpose too yeah like when I, I live in tennessee now which is very southern christian i see a lot of people imitating christ right they, it's almost like embedded in their yeah basic right. being so that's right over to you <laughs> yeah so the first questions will be quite easy to answer so object is almost anything you can think of that desire can latch onto. And so uh, I use it in the broadest sense of the term. Um, object can mean literally object, iPhone, your, your things hidden book that, that's new and fresh. I'm like mine, that's about to fall apart. Um, but it could also be something like job title. It could be a person, like a partner. Um, it could be a place in history, literally anything that we can attach our desires to. So it spans almost everything i really can't think of anything, anything that, that becomes an objective right it's more it's not yeah right i, I, I like that yeah object objective, objective yeah your course of action that's your object. yeah yeah i like that so, so i really can't think of one thing that couldn't fall uh under under desire mm -hmm. and the second question of model mm -hmm. uh, a model is essentially someone who you imitate or someone who uh, mediates you is the other way to to frame that mm -hmm. and um, you know, Gerard, and I think this, this is, you know, quite plausible, thinks that different people imitate us, influence us in very different ways, right? Because if you think about mimesis, right, we talked about this uh, before we recorded this universal medium mm -hmm. uh, of, of communication. Mimesis is almost uh, the human way to tap into the subjectivity of the other, yes. right? The, the, think about the violin strings. It's, it's a way for me to simulate, you know, what's going on in there in, in Robert's head. And uh, in that in that way, Gerard must think that different people mediate us to different degrees, right? So you know, it, if my best friend, this is a great example. If my best friend, let, let's say none of us liked Rolex watches. If my best friend bought a Rolex watch, my increase in desire there will probably be a bit more than if, you know, some stranger or, some, or a coworker that I didn't particularly know brought out a Rolex watch and showed it to me. Gerard's intuition here is that we're more open, our, our mimetic channel, so to speak, is more open to certain people um, than, than, than others. Uh, and, and maybe we can call a certain, above a certain level of openness as, as model. Um, so, so, so that's what we mean there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the, I can reflect on this in my own development. There were friends that I had at a young age, you know, we spent a lot of time together. I admired certain things about them. I was probably very likely unconsciously imitating them in certain respects to see myself now in my adult life. I've, I can identify these little pigments of them, like their personality right. have been incorporated into mine, right? Or certain tone of speech, right? How you say yeah. a certain word, something like that. Yeah. Right. Certain uh, characteristics or certain maybe standard operating response or something in certain situations you've you i can see that i've obtained those from others so again i didn't know about any of this prior to reading the book it just sort of once you see it, it, it a lot of things start to make sense all of a sudden 
That's right. And, um, you know, if, if you're further interested, I can break it down to, I can break down what makes someone more open to mimesis for, for, for another person. The first one is just exposure, yep. right? You can think about like a multiplying factor. Um, the second one we talked about already is how, like how in essence similar are we, right? right. And Gerard's example here is actually, he gives an example from fiction, which we'll, you know, we'll talk about in your third question of uh, Don Quixote and his uh, 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 squire, sort of Sancho, right? Mm -hmm. And Sancho, it's interesting, doesn't desire what Don Quixote desires. He desires what Don Quixote tells him to desire, which is to be a governor, hmm. right? Don Quixote won. And so the, the idea there is that, you know, Sancho came from like a peasantry. Don Quixote is, uh, you know, foolish, but still nobility. Hmm. But because the social distance there is so great, even though they're proximate, they're exposed, constantly exposed to each other. Um, they actually, it's actually not as open or not directly open, mimesis. Um, and, and the last one, right, is, is we talked about this already, is how great do we consider their being to be, right? So the most uh, potent form of model would be someone who you think is in essence similar to you, someone you're constantly, constantly exposed to, and someone who you look up to very, very highly, mm. right? So I, I think that also gives some more explanatory value here. But I want to jump to your third question, because I think it's a very interesting one. Um, and I mean, the short answer is yes, that we are mediated, not just by real people, um, but by fictional characters, by people who construct, by people who are in our memory, right? And it almost becomes trivial when you think how, you know, we're clearly mediated by real people through the screen, mm -hmm. right? Okay, if we're mediated by that, we must be mediated by people in a TV show, mm -hmm. right? If we're mediated by people in a TV show, then certainly books. And so, so you see how you can naturally get there. But let, let me give you a, maybe a more direct and empirical case about really the power of fiction to ground people's moral intuitions. Uh, you see, as, as China became liberalized and its media landscape became liberalized in the, in the late 20th century, there was a very funny anecdote about uh, a farmer who was arrested. And when he was arrested, he said something like, you know, I know my Fifth Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. um, he was watching too much of like CSI or like these like American crime shows. And of course, he didn't have the exact same of rights in, in China as one does in, in, in America. And so you see how there through pure fiction alone, mm -hmm. it grounds people's moral intuitions about what is right, what is wrong about the world. I'll give you another example where, you know, uh, you know, one of the Mission Impossible, it's the Tom Cruise movies, right, where he was clearly operating on a you know deontological and not utilitarian framework. So, so, so I, I, he was acting on principle and not for the the, the outcome, to put it simply. So he he was trying to fight. Uh, I I think that this bad guy or. Or, or something like he didn't want to kill this good guy. She had a bomb strapped to her or, or something. And then what ended up happening was that by not killing that person, like 20 other people died. Mm -hmm. But the movie portrayed that as a good thing. You see what I'm trying to say? So you see how there's a subtle moral message that movie sends by portraying that as good. It's, it's favoring one framework of moral action over the other framework. Um, so yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Gerard believes that, and I think I would agree with him here, that, you know, characters and, and fictions can influence us uh, greatly. This is why Plato, for example, wanted to ban or wanted a tight control of media in his ideal city, that only certain heroes, uh, even though they, they, they're probably fictional, should be sung about, because he didn't quite like the, the Homeric ethics. He didn't like, he didn't like what Achilles was making the, the, the youth of Greece become. Yeah. Like Athens, sorry. Yeah, no, that's excellent points there. And I, I'm just reminded of 
that Peterson point where like he always says we live in stories, we inhabit stories, and it very much is we are storytellers. So the, the mythologies that underpin our society are they're imitated, right? They're they're widely imitated. That's almost what defines the mythology itself. Right. Um and then I there's what is the old whoever said this that you become the average of the five people you spend most of your time with. I mean, I think that's another angle on mimesis. Is like, yeah, I think that's right. Right. Why you become the average of five people because you're unconsciously constantly open to the the, the influence. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, super interesting. And, and if I may jump in, just, just one thing here about this intuition. You know, I constantly get the question, um, very self helpy, but I think very practical question. I mean, you know, practical self help questions are what motivated me to get into philosophy in the first place. Um, and I think philosophy should have a lot to say for people who are interested in those questions. Um, but one question I get is like, what, what, what do we do about this? This, this fact that we are you know, concerned for metaphysical desire. And I think there's generally two strategies and, and maybe they're not um, completely uh, intention, right? One is just to limit metaphysical desire, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, the second one is for your metaphysical desire to align with your physical desire. And, and so, you know, I, I was doing CS and I didn't really like CS um, that much. But CS had a lot of prestige, um, and how, however, I was not enjoying my life. Sorry. What is CS? Oh, computer science. In, oh, in okay. I was talking about majors. Got it. Um, and and yet, yeah, my simple point being, what I was really interested at the time was philosophy. And when I started hanging around philosophers, mm -hmm. right, my my sort of physical and metaphysical desires came came together. And I think it's quite natural where, and I think Gerard does believe this, that we do genuinely desire things for their own sake. Hmm. And so if you know that you desire something for your own sake, then perhaps surround yourself with you know, five people or however many or community that do desire those things as well. So when you ingest their normative values through mimesis, hmm. there is no fundamental conflict, right? Hmm. And it's aligned. This is perhaps why on the converse case, um, you know, the stories we know too well of a, you know, queer kid growing up with conservative parents, right? Or a, a artistic kid growing up with uh, industrial sort of capitalistic parents, why, you know, they, they can have issues down the road is because, you know, what they desire and what they ingest from a young age from a mesis is always conflicting. And as a result, you know, part of themselves perhaps is also conflicting. So that, that actually, you know, gives us a very uh, direct and straightforward model for, for, for what to do in life. Or, or part of the question of what to do in life. That's, yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, because I wonder if Christ is not somehow part of the intention of his message is to help resolve that, to align metaphysical and physical desire, right? Because we're saying, I don't know, he, a lot of the things in Christ's message of just love yourself as your neighbor, you know, be fruitful and multiply. There's this idea of overcoming maybe the purely Darwinian pursuit of self-interest and right, 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 more community or family-like relationship with with others. Yeah, like maybe yeah. some of that message is designed to re to resolve that angst of, you know, I I got to eat, I got to have shelter, I got to have this, but you also want to have meaning in life, and that's through participating in life with others. So. Um, yeah, that, I think that's right. And, you know, there, there's so much one can can say about uh, Christianity and Gerard. In fact, there's, you know, multiple books, as you know, written by himself on it. But the one thing I'll say is, um, you know, how I initially listed these two strategies to resolve this dilemma. Mm -hmm. One is to lower metaphysical desire. One is to 
Um, one is to try to make them align. Mm -hmm. um, I think Christ, um, you're right. I think he, he, he does perhaps have, I need to think more about this, help us align. But for Gerard, I think it's most obvious that Christ teaches us to uh, resolve or, or, or like limit metaphysical desire. And one way he does so that Gerard asks us to imitate. And I think, you know, when Gerard says imitatio Christi, he's talking about many things, uh, maybe it's love, but a dominant one, an overlooked one is withdrawal. Mm. So Gerard says this, and this is almost quote for quote, uh, Christ withdrew at the very moments which he could dominate. And what he means here is that when Christ was resurrected, he could have been the king of the world. Because he could just go to people and say, hey, you remember how you killed me? Well, here I am, right? And, and, and you know, that would be a quite convincing sign of divinity, surely. But he didn't, right? He met the disciples, he came back, hung around a little bit, and then he withdrew. And so Gerard says, we need to imitate Christ, both in how he refuses to imitate others, but also in how he refused to be imitated. Mm. And so uh, the, the model par excellence that the Gerard asks us to imitate, who he himself is imitating Christ, is the uh, Friedrich Holderlin, this uh, 19th century poet, contemporary of Schelling and Hegel's, who literally uh, hold himself in a tower for the last few decades of his life. Hmm. Now, this is quite a troubling um, suggestion by, by late Gerard, and it was only made because he, he felt like the end of the world was imminent or, or unavoidable, but it's troubling because while Gerard describes Holderlin as saintly, his contemporaries who visited Holderlin describe him as frantic and crazy, paranoid. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there. I'm sure that's a lot to digest. Well, yeah, I mean, it, to not be imitated, yeah, the only path to that is to try and withdraw oneself from the world. But that also would be presumably very difficult to have a meaningful life in that case. You're just yeah, solitary solitary confinement right yeah 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 no that, that's a, and, and and um i don't think gerard gave that final suggestion out of a glee like oh guys i figured it out we just but out of a desperate dis defeatism that that he, he you know he thought that there were ways to exist in the world but um you know as, as unpalatable as that is um i have found anecdotally from my friends just how important it is to leave any type of high competitive environment you're in for a short period of time like for me, being in New York, I almost need a uh, perhaps a one month detox in the summer when I go hang out with hippies. Uh, this summer I was in Peru and Costa Rica, I was still working because it's the time zones. But the mere fact that you're not in New York, you don't have these status symbols constantly berating you. Yeah. It's quite a nice reset, so to speak. Right. So, so, so there's some uh, there, there's something to be learned from that practically, even if you don't take it all the way. Yes. OK, super interesting stuff. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. 
And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. All right, I want to I want to understand how we segue then into, so we have mimesis, which we've well established is this almost constant ubiquitous phenomenon in human interaction. Right. How does this segue into the logic of violence? Right, right, right. The founding of social institutions. I'm not sure which path we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take us from mimesis to step two. I'll, I'll give you the super short version and I'll do another shameless plug where we have a, you know, a two hour lecture series just on this very topic. So, so I'll, it's lecture, uh, lecture four, it's on the scapegoat mechanism. Okay. That's what it's called. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a super quick TLDR and then you can tell me where you want to double click. So Gerard first explains, gives an explanation for why he thinks conflict happened. It is mimetic desire, right? The intuition is quite almost trivially simple. If we tend to desire what other people desire, well, of course, that's going to lead us into conflict. And, you know, he would point to things like um, perhaps the Trojan War, right? Where, you know, Paris, Prince of, Prince of Troy, he could have any woman that, that he, he wanted, but he wanted what the Spartan king had, yeah. right? He wanted Helen. Um, and as a result, uh, Gerard also thinks that there's a reciprocal act of violence where everyone who's engaged in violence thinks or tends to think that they're in the, on the defense and feels like their next act of vengeance is justified. Yeah. And then violence, furthermore, like a plague, 
grow slowly and slowly to envelop greater, greater amount of people. And, you know, there's a real historical example there, right? He's giving you, uh, or I was giving you examples of the Trojan War, but, you know, World War I was like this, right? Assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Then July crisis, Austria-Hungary's allies, Serbia's allies, the whole continent was erupted in war, right? Mm -hmm. Or think about World War II. America didn't really want to, you know, fight another war that, that had nothing to do on its soil. But Japan really couldn't leave America alone, right? Any, any more than the Greeks could have left Patroclus alone, uh, uh, Achilles' friend. And so uh, I, I like to, to, to analogize that uh, Pearl Harbor was uh, uh, America's Patroclus, mm. that um, the, the rival forces bombed it in the same way that the Trojans killed Patroclus. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that Achilles couldn't hold back, neither could America hold back and, and fight the war. And so for Gerard, violence is the thing that is easily triggered and as soon as it's triggered, it starts ballooning mm -hmm. and enveloping larger and larger uh, social uh, groups. Mm -hmm. And so the only hominoid groups, Gerard argues, that survived were ones that really stumbled upon, almost like in a Darwinian evolutionary process, upon what he called the scapegoat mechanism. And the mechanism goes something like all of society's blame would be directed upon one or a small set of victims will be expelled in an act of catharsis and that expulsion would lead to permanent peace well the question then is like well why like well, why does that have to be the case right what, what are these enlightened thinkers um, or like someone like Hobbes tell us well it tells us in the world I mean, it's a thought experiment but the intuition is uh in the war of all against all you and I are at each other's throats we could just come down and lay out some kind of rational social contract right you know, I recognize if I fight you, my needs are messed up. And so we all come down, we form a state. Well, Gerard says it's precisely in the middle of all or of all against all, where mimesis is the most inflamed, mm. that we can't use reason, right? I mean, think about a smaller scale scruffle you had with, uh, with a good friend, not even an enemy. Mm -hmm. Reason has little domain over us when envy, when pride, right, is hurt. Gerard's point is that in these cases where the spirited part of ourselves, right, it's not our appetite, it's not our reason that is harmed, but it's our spirits, right, our self-conception that is harmed, our symbolic part of ourselves, mm. we also need an equally symbolic resolution, and that is catharsis. Mm. And the only way for us to get the same, the, the, the high, the, uh, high enough level of catharsis is to, sit, to put all the blame on one victim, right? It, it's not as cathartic to tackle a systematic issue. Then it is to say that right there, that person is pure evil, we need to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And so Gerard thinks that the foundations of peace will always need to be a lie. Mm -hmm. Because usually in the war of all against all, almost everyone is a bit guilty. Surely someone is guilty than the other. But you can't just pick one person and says that hey, this guy is responsible for all the blame. Mm -hmm. Gerard thinks that this all has to be deceitful grounded on a founding murder, a founding lie. Mm. And the belief of this lie is grounded on nothing but the unanimity of the crowd, the fact that everyone starts believing in it. And a you know, very tragic example of this, the scapegoat mechanism at play is with Nazi Germany, right? Nazi Germany was in a state of mimetic contagion, hyperinflation, and you know, Hitler pick the Jews as the sort of scapegoats, mm -hmm. right? The one sort of group of people to blame everything upon. And that was the type of intuition that Gerard sees playing throughout history, whether it's you know, Julius Caesar, it's, whether it's the death of Socrates. Um, and you know, long story short, I'm gonna skip, skip ahead a bit. Gerard thinks that 
the cultures that the culture that, that, that these events would be so cataclysmic and so foundational that cultures would try to derive lessons from these events. Mm -hmm. and, and these lessons would form the basis of the institutions of those societies. One set of institutions he calls prohibitions. And the way they resolve violence, so we've already touched upon this in some extent, is that they create social difference between people. Mm -hmm. They say, let's look at what happened. Let's look at what the problem was. And let's put in rigid uh, prohibitions mm -hmm. around that. For example, a lot of uh, uh, pagan societies are very averse to twins to the extent that in some, obviously a very limited handful of societies, when a mother has a twin, she needs to kill one of them. Hmm. And Gerard's intuition is that um, twins are a symbol of violent conflict because it represents a breaking down of social difference. Hmm. So this aversion against twins is actually aversion against the conditions that create social conflict. The other uh, class of institutions that really helps societies resolve, learn from uh, the, these, uh, these, these founding murders and is sacrifice. It is ritual. The idea is let's do prohibitions. You know, let's do prohibitions. Let's try to contain violence. When that fails, let's try to recreate the founding murder, right? And, and that's where you, Gerard thinks Aztec human sacrifice uh, and all the things like that, or even carnival. Hmm. um ha happens so 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 that's the sort of like i don't know five ten minute version of how we get all the way from mimesis to the uh violent foundings of, of human society as well as how institutions are derived yeah it's so much to take in so that we get this founding i guess that we're embroiled in a mimetic crisis the war of all against all being the, the yep. extent of that and then the, the scapegoat mechanism is occurring naturally, or is this some type of covert effort, like a group of people get together? And yeah, say, yeah, yeah. That's, that's blame on these guys and kill them. And that's a great question. How that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think the answer would be it occurs naturally. Mm. Um, and I think Gerard's answer would also say it doesn't always occur. But simply, all the societies that were able to successfully found peace, it right. did occur. Right. Yeah. right. Um, and let me give you an example of it recurring wrongly. Uh, again, this is going to be from from fiction, but I think you'll, you'll be able to get the intuition here. You know, when the Greeks were trying to sail for Troy, I think uh, Agamemnon, the Greek leader, right? Uh, uh, he, he pissed off, I think, Artemis. Mm -hmm. And Artemis made, made it such that the, the winds don't blow. Mm -hmm. And so, Ar uh, so Agamemnon needs to sacrifice um, uh, his daughter. Like, this is clearly meant to be a punishment for him. Mm -hmm. But that sacrifice didn't lead to peace. It led to more violence because the wife, Agamemnon's wife, the mother of the daughter who was sacrificed, was incredibly pissed off. Mm -hmm. Ended up killing Agamemnon. Agamemnon's child, Orestes, ended up you know, avenging his father. So, so th there are clearly sacrificial mechanisms gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Gerard is simply saying, this is the, the shape of, of uh, in some sense, it's even more distasteful, right? <laughs> because he, he's, he's saying... All the societies that were founded, all the pagan societies that were founded, they had to go through this violent, deceitful process. And I, you know, I don't think I agree with this completely. It seems, that, as you can probably, uh, as you're probably experiencing here, it seems a bit far-fetched when you hear it first hear it. But when you look at um, things like the Rig Veda, mm -hmm. uh, what is called the Hymn to Purusha, you actually can see traces of, of a founding murder that led to the establishment of all the institutions of a, of a pagan society. So, yeah, to answer your question. 
it's a random process. It's not like a covert group directing it, even though some people might be more aware of this than others. Um, and furthermore, it's a random process that's not guaranteed to happen every time a mimetic crisis happens. But, but, but it must happen, Gerard thinks, if a mimetic crisis is to be successfully resolved. Fascinating. So there's this, there's somewhat of an inevitable deception or lie, or I guess a useful fiction in this way. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because that's kind of the main skill humans have, that we tell these stories and change. So, so here's the really interesting thing about this, this whole thing, because as you described, as we discussed, right, and when we talked about social difference, and I was like, you know, it's clearly oppressive, and you were like, yeah, it's oppressive, but it sounds like it's also really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the really, the, uh, ambi- uh, Gerard is the most, one of the most ambivalent writers I've come across, and, and I think you've really poked at the horn, you're really poking at the, the hornet's nest here, and I think your insights are exactly spot on. In fact, Gerard would think that the scapegoat mechanism is nothing but Satan, right? So, so, so Gerard attempts what he calls an anthropology of the cross, mm-hmm. which is an attempt to translate Christian language from the other world grounded into this world. So he attempts to make sense of the Christian story by appealing just to anthropological, human, psychological, social mechanisms. So for Gerard, Satan is mostly the emergent mechanism of the scapegoat mechanism. However, because the scapegoat mechanism is also the foundation of peace in this world, Gerard thinks that in some sense, all worldly power is satanic in some sense. Hmm. And even you and I who participate, who benefit from this peace, we're participating, according to Gerard, in Satanism right now. But here's the real interesting apocalyptic paradox, right? Because Satan is ultimately evil. He's deceitful. He's lies. He's murdering of innocent victims, but he's so damn effective. And he was the only thing that kept human societies alive. Christ, on the other hand, who's out here really to expose Satan, right, through his own death, to expose the scapegoat mechanism, so Gerard thinks, is the exact reverse. Christ is ultimately good, but he brings forth worldly destruction. And Gerard would quote, would remind us that, that Christ himself says as much, I think it's Matthew 10, 34, where Christ has this to say. He says, think not that I'm come to bring peace. I bring not peace, but a sword. Mm -hmm. So orthodoxy tends to interpret this language as saying, you know, Christ is saying something not as spectacular as you think he is. He's just saying, you know, some some families, there's going to be believers and non-believers, and there's going to be a little conflict between them. But Gerard says, nay, Gerard says, Christ is using that sword to cut down the very foundations of worldly order. And so Christ, in some sense, is engendering the apocalypse. Um, but but I, I think you're starting to see the interesting tension here with Gerard, right? And, and why uh, he's such a fascinating and sometimes frustrating person to, to engage with, which is he's marked by these extreme ambivalences. Equality, ultimately good, engendered by Christ. Also, that it creates the social conditions for, for apocalyptic modernity. Mm-hmm. Killing innocent victims, terrible, deceitful, lying. The only thing that pagan societies could ever have uh, discovered to, to save themselves. So it's that, 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 that tension is part of what makes Gerard quite interesting to engage with. Yes, yeah, super fascinating. Uh, okay, so when social differences are minimized, like you mentioned, the caste system, um, 
I guess traditional hierarchies, maybe. Yeah, gender roles would be another one. Whatever it may be, whatever these normative structures are, when we disinhibit those normative structures, we're actually allowing mimetic violence to spread more rapidly. Yes, but we're also creating uh, the conditions for genuine love as well. Wow. So, so it's really this catch-22, right? You, you can't re really like step one foot forward with Gerard without, you know, stepping the other foot back. But, but, um, so what does that say about today? Okay. Well, I'm not sure. Okay. Do we talk about the logic of violence and then how it altered in the 20th century? And then maybe we talk about today where social differences seem to be, at least there's some effort to push them down, right? We're all equal. Yeah. Diversity, equity, and inclusion everywhere. Right, 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 right. How do we approach this? Well, before we talk about the 20th century, we, we really need to mention uh, Christ's revelation and the significance okay. of that for Gerard. Because Gerard, uh, that story I just told you, right? Uh, Mimetic contagion, war of all against all, leading to founding murder, leading to institutionalization, that is in a pagan world. Mm -hmm. And Gerard's point there is that, of course, as institutions grow old, they're going to lose their prestige. Mm -hmm. And so this cycle needs to happen again and again and again and again, right? New gods need to be erected. Mm -hmm. But Gerard thinks that Christ fundamentally takes us away from a circular trajectory mm -hmm. to a linear trajectory. So we're now in the linear time. Mm -hmm. And the way that Christ has done this, according to Gerard, is by exposing the scapegoat mechanism. So remember how I told you the scapegoat mechanism was never done consciously, but it was a sub an unconscious effort? Well, that would be Gerard's point as well, that, that you know, no one before Christ really you know, knew, it, you know, they might have like unintentionally put blame or intentionally put uh, a blame on someone, but they didn't know that this was the cycle that they were participating in. Right. What Christ does, very simple here, we've got another, another shameless plug, we've got another whole hour and a half uh, episode just on this. What Christ has done is set up the perfect trap for the scapegoat mechanism. Because what Christ was doing in his life, you know, according to the Bible, you know, who are one of the people that he was railing against? He was railing against the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The, the Jewish legal authorities of the time. And what was he, what was he campaigning against them on? It was uh, the persecution. It was persecution of innocent victims. Christ says, you know, and when, he, when he's describing who he's trying to defend, the blood of all the prophets that perished from the altar to the temple, the blood from... Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Abel's the first victim. All the way to Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last victims in the Old Testament. That is who, he, who Christ is trying to defend. And so Christ is out there trying to expose the scapegoat mechanism, which really leaves the worldly authorities at the time, of course, it was the Romans, two choices. You know, you, you, let, you let, let the man continue. He's going to continue talking about this and exposing it, or you kill him, which is what they did. Hmm. But the very killing proved that fact the very silencing of christ became the loud resounding voice that mm. shouted his message throughout history so gerard's point is that a christ uh, sacrificed himself in some way you gotta, you gotta be very careful with that term sacrifice in christianity with gerard but in some sense he sacrificed himself um by laying a perfect trap for the scapegoat mechanism exposing it mm. so this is why gerard thinks in modernity we care so much about the victim it's because of Christ that there's been a, we, we did a 180 mm -hmm. from a society that used to punish victims, find innocent victims because of the revelations of, revelations of Christ. We did a 180. Now we're protecting victims, right? Mm -hmm. And this is quite a extraordinary transformation 
-hmm. when, when you read, as you do, about ancient societies, how much we care for victims today, if not, for example, how it's prestigious for a developed nation to compete to help developing nations, right? That would be almost uh, quite, quite unthinkable, perhaps, in, in, in parts of antiquity. Um, and so the, the question is, okay, well, that's a great thing, right? Terrific. We've exposed the scapegoat mechanism, but don't forget, the scapegoat mechanism was what we kept violence in check with, right? Right. So, so, so Christ has taken off our training wheels, and Gerard would say that we've only fallen and stumbled because here's the problem: persecution, as we well know, in the 20th century, unfortunately, exists live, alive and well, right? Most notably, Soviet communists. Uh, persecuting entire class, right? The bourgeoisie in the name of the proletariat, and Hitler and the Nazis persecuting the Jews. And this is Gerard's very terrifying claim: is that you know we 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 are gaining this subconscious awareness of the scapegoat mechanism, but we haven't fully realized it. Like we're starting to look out for it already. So we can't. We're not as gullible as let's say Thebes, right? Thebes. Oh, there's a plague hitting Thebes. It's Oedipus's fault. One man is to blame for all the trouble in Thebes. If that would engender peace in, in, Theban, uh, in Theban antiquity, right now it can engender nothing but humor, mm -hmm. right? And laughs. Like, it would be like saying, you know, you know who was responsible for COVID? Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump, because he, you know, he ate KFC one time. Right. I mean, th that was basically the argument, right? But, but something, there's something good, Gerard says. Again, we always have to re wrestle with ambivalence with Gerard. There's something good about this pagan gullibility which is only one person needs to die, mm. right? You can blame the whole thing on one person. When you exist in this magical world mm -hmm. where a, a symbolic incest can ruin entire society, well, you can blame just one person. However, in modernity, the rational mind, the less gullible mind can no longer believe that one person is responsible for all the problems, mm. but the mind can still believe that an entire class or entire race is responsible mm -hmm. for all the problems. So remember what we talked about, what, what Gerard thinks society needs to maintain peace. It's a form of catharsis, right? And that catharsis needs a corresponding level of evil, evil responsibility, mm. right? So before, because people were gullible, one man could be responsible for that entire evil. Now, right, the level of responsibility is the same. His level of catharsis is the same. Mm. Right now, we need many more people to blame. Mm. To, to inherit the same level of evil responsibility. So Gerard thinks that in some sense, exposing it has, has made it much worse. Hmm. Wow, and then is it, are we able to get beyond blaming people at all? I mean, it, is that something that's just pre-programmed is that we need to have this catharsis, it has to be channeled at some one or some people, like the violence has to come out or, because it seems to me just by engaging in this dialogue about this mechanism, that if everyone was on this level of awareness about it, not that we're there, but that is perhaps attainable, that you could just say, hey, this is a strange mimetic mirroring phenomenon that's been playing out for a long time. Maybe we could just stop <laughs> killing each other thinking it's going to solve problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I love it. You're hitting on the exactly the right Gerardian intuitions that Gerard himself um, thought of. And he actually had this uh, sort of optimism when he was writing that book, Things Hidden. However, he retracted basically two major statements in his final book, Things Hidden. Mm -hmm. um, one was you know, Christianity, sacrifice, we won't get into it. The other is 
the mere belief that the mere awareness of this mechanism is, a, is enough to engender the kingdom of God. Because fundamentally, if you think back to Gerard's psychology, for him, reason is very weak. So the mere knowing of it is really going to do very, very little. Mm. What we need is a complete internal transformation. Uh, process Solomon, he almost compares to like a nirvana. So this is a very you know, deep sort of personal transformation where we are in, in a natural state of um, unconditional love for the other. Mm. But again, right, think about what that entails. As a loving and nonviolent person in a violent world, you are almost bound to die. This is his commentary on Christ, mm -hmm. that, that is such a truthful and loving figure in such a violent world, he was bound to be murdered. Mm -hmm. And so Gerard thinks, and this goes back, I think, to our, one of your early comments, or maybe this is before we were recording, Gerard thinks that the kingdom of God, and for him, that, that, that means everyone unilaterally, unilaterally, like you said, renouncing violence, you know, giving up uh, violence and scapegoating. He thinks that's a logical possibility, but a statistical impossibility. Mm -hmm. And so let me give you an example. So uh, 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 imagine a monkey typing on keyboards. Mm -hmm. Imagine such a monkey in his first try types the Bible word for word out. That is a metaphysical possibility, right? That's a logical possibility. There's nothing about the rules of the universe that says that that can happen. But is that likely to happen? Probably not, right? Statistically, very unlikely. And so Gerard would, would say the same. I think there's the same modal status about sort of a positive solution for Gerard, which is that it's a logical possibility that we all experience this fundamental transformation and you know, we all sort of give up violence, not even knowing if other people have given up violence. And if they haven't, then, then we're kind of screwed. Um, but, but he really thinks it's a statistical impossibility. So in his final work, he, he would be extremely pessimistic, hence why the withdrawal and all the stuff we talked about before. Interesting. So he had an optimism in this book, but he retracted it and he retracted it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had a, he had a, he had a, and, and even optimism is, you know, Gerard's optimism is still quite muted, but he had, he had an op optimism that, that he did retract. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I often, we often discuss incentives on this show and I've come to view, I don't, I think incentives are very fundamental. You know, the, the Solzhenitsyn always talks about the line between good and evil passing through the heart of every human. Right. And I don't think we can change that necessarily, that that's something we come pre-programmed with, but it does seem like we can change the incentive structures that we, right, 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 that, right. that moves the line a lot, right? When I look at the history yeah, of yeah, atrocity, yeah, right, right. there's usually some material incentive driving it. There's, I mean, of course, yeah, yeah, psychopaths yeah. at the edge, you know, one to 5% of the population that just want to see the world burn. You got to deal with those people, but mass atrocity, I mean, it typically is associated with people Forced Forced into into yeah, they have yeah. to weigh like their material well-being against their moral integrity and um seems like the best thing we could do is engineer around that yeah i think i think that's a right intuition um and what, what gerard would say uh he, he gives a very similar comment he says human nature really hasn't changed that much mm -hmm. even though prima facie as a society level we have a complete transformation right before we persecute victims now we, we uh, protect victims. Before we are uh, fetishization, fetishizing of tradition, of antiquity. Now we love the new, we love innovation. Mm -hmm. 
before, you know, we were admired in all these sort of superstitions. And now we are relentlessly seeking truth. But Gerard really thinks that it's literally the same human nature, that same, uh, you know, the same line cutting through our hearts, but projected in a different incentive or social system. Hmm. So Gerard thinks we're, for example, conforming to contrarianism. Hmm. That, that we've treated innovation as the tradition to conform to. Hmm. So even though the peers were actually innovating, and think about all the derivative startups that you're seeing in the crypto space who, who, who advertise themselves as the most radical innovations. It's completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, same thing can go for truth, or perhaps, uh, and the same can go for protection of victims. Gerard thinks that the protection of victims is the only banner where the persecution of victims can happen today. So his claim here is that the only acceptable way to persecute victims these days is under the banner of protecting victims. Wow. And that's why um, he thinks that the only things we're allowed to persecute today, well, first of all, he thinks that it's great that we don't persecute the classical minorities, right? The Jews, the disabled, women, children. It, great, it's great we don't persecute those. But we have an obligation today um, to persecute all types of privilege, right? Male privilege, white privilege, class privilege, and that we feel we are warranted to persecute mm. because it's in the name of the protection of victims. So do you see how the form of human behavior, of human nature, quote unquote, is still the same, but it's the different social circumstance that we operate on, which is different. And of course, Gerard would, would uh, include the atrocities of the Soviet totalitarianism, uh, right? It was, it was the protection, protection of the proletariat, the little right. economic guy. And so, however, Gerard insists that it is still better to conform to a, to a culture that uh, protects victims than a culture that persecutes them, even if sometimes that protection is hypocritical. Wow, that's scary to think about it that way because this idea of to successfully persecute victims today, you have to hide under the veil of helping victims. Right. This is just that resonates was loudly to me of centralized government where everything they do is for your for the little guy right air quotes for your safety for your you know to protect you to advance the american dream whatever the the bullshit is they're serving up that day but in reality it's more taxation more inflation more oppression more theft more control so it's this that idea it's that idea of persecuting right through the banner of helping them um and the other thing that's coming up for me here is it seems like Perhaps part of what he's describing is we are, because we are animals, we're this highly imitative animal. Uh, and we, obviously there's more objects in the world than there are, I'm sorry, there's more desire in the world for objects than there are objects. So we're, we're in, inherently going to be conflictual with one another or antagonistic. Can I interrupt you yes. just, just there? I want you to finish your point, but it's something even stronger. It's like, even if we are in a post-scarcity world, and I think there's a good argument that much of us are already in a post-scarcity world, if you take scarcity to be the basic needs of living. Mm. Even if that is the case, because our desires are mimetic, we're still going to converge and battle over what should be an infinite set of objects. Mm. I mean, if, if you leave children alone in a room with a similar set of toys, they've done this experiment, mm. they all end up fighting over one toy, mm. <laughs> even though there's 10 of them and there's like five children. Have you seen the the um, the show American Psycho, the, the, the movie American Psycho? Yeah, exactly. yeah. 
Yeah, remember that 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 boardroom scene where they're competing over the business cards, cards and yeah. the, the damn business cards look exactly identical, yeah. but the lettering is different, right? Pale Nimbus white, yeah. right? Rails, raised lettering. I, I don't remember all of them, yeah. Yeah. but it's so it's even more damning for Gerard. It's even if this world was infinite, the fact that our desires converge will still lead us to conflict. But wow. I interrupted you, but I no, that's a great point. So even if we live in the Garden of Eden, we're still gonna yeah. Find or, or or to put it another way, you know, we're already post scarcity. Or or to put it even another way, or the other way to put that is, is that there can be no post scarcity because mm. because uh, uh uh oh here's, here's a great one liner, uh scarcity, uh competition precedes scarcity, even though many people think scarcity precedes competition. Mm. The, the the mere fact of competing and creates that scarcity, creates that desire, right? right? Think about Kanye's $100 white t-shirts. <laughs> now, this is a great point. And I'm very uh, careful with my language here because in economics, what we define scarcity is anywhere demand exceeds supply. So there's more demand for the thing than there is ability to right, satisfy right. the demand. Um, and, and I've also written about this, that I think economic supply and demand can equally be called satisfaction and desire. That's ultimately what we're trying mm. to solve for. Mm. There's people that have wants or desires, and then there's people that are commercializing their ability to satisfy wants and desires, right? That's consumption and production. And so this inherent, uh, I guess, attachment of desire to objects somewhat obvious and natural as an animal existing in the world but we compound it perhaps by all focusing right. on one thing yeah 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 that's right um okay that's a tricky one <laughs> all right we've thrown around this word a couple times apocalypse today which i know the root of it means to uncover or reveal Re revelation it's yeah. a revelation right it's a revelation as you described earlier the revelation of christ was kind of to some extent throwing light on this mechanism and it's very fast yeah. in the book where you're reading through gerard's anthropological description of the mechanism and then he'll just drop in a passage from the bible and it's like it's describing it to you there's he, he says often nothing is hidden right like it's saying it right here plain english so how has that changed our relationship with this scapegoating mechanism and then how does that how did it, I'm trying to get us into the 20th century here where the logic of violence has, yeah, has yeah, changed yeah, significantly. Yeah. Mm. Um, is there a, and there's so much to unpack here. It seems to me like Christ, or at least the ethos of Christ is partially responsible for getting us into the industrial age capitalism. Yes, yes, modernity. that's right. Gerard would say Christ is responsible for science, which, for which science. is a very, yeah. But anyways. So that, underpins the mechanization and industrialization of warfare in the 20th century which mm -hmm. drastically increased our yeah ability to kill one another i guess in a, yeah an efficient way yes um so how is it i guess we're stuck in this ambivalence again christ is throwing light on this mechanism which is maybe helping us transcend it but it's also perhaps accelerating it too and that we've now yeah yeah warfare. so how how does the scapegoat mechanism or our relationship to it perhaps change right, in the right, right. century and, yeah. and why? 
That's a great question. Um, and I think we've already highlighted a couple of ways that it has changed. You know, one way is that now it needs to be done in the protection of victims, right? Because Christ's message has been so resounding. We so naturally, this, this, this sort of Western intuition to side with the little guy, that's not a normal sort of sort of, sort of intuition. I, I, I don't know if, a, you know, someone listening to Homer would have sided with the little guy. Right. Um, so this intuition of protecting victims has become so prevalent as to become uh, the, the dominant uh, uh, sort of ideology, so to speak, that the first thing is that the persecution of victims now needs to be in the name of protection of victims. Uh-huh. Right? Before it could be done in the name of a god, it could be done in the name of polis. Now we need to do it in the protection of victims. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that this exposure has made the, the mechanism much worse in the sense that a greater amount of people need to be blamed for the same level of catharsis. And we discussed this already, right? right? right. Um, the third thing is a positive thing, which is the exposure of this mechanism in, genuinely does limit its, its inflammations, mm-hmm. right? just by the mere fact of being, and there's where the ambivalence comes in. Um, yeah, so, so I think those are the ways those, those three ways are probably what I would say. Although I do want to touch upon your point of apocalypse, um, if, if, you, if you'd like to go there. Um, so I think and we've covered an enormous amount of ground today, um, but I think people can already get an intuition of why Gerard thinks we're, we're in the end times, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because social differences have been breaking down. So the things that used to contain violence, prohibition, this difference between people is no more. But all, so, so is our tools with resolving violence, mm-hmm. right? So, so are the rituals breaking down. And here's what I'll talk about. I'll talk about the institution of war mm-hmm. um, because I, I think um, this is what really occupied Gerard's mind for his final book, Battling to the End. The, the French translation had on its cover, the original uh, a nuclear bomb. So, so this was very much in, in Gerard's mind. So uh, first of all, I would say our listeners may be a bit uh, distraught or unsettled by the fact that I described war as an institution. Mm-hmm. How do we think about, how do we think about institutions? We think about rules and regs. We think about bureaucracy. We think about the things you have to follow. What do you think about war? You know, just do whatever, no rules, right? Like do whatever you need to do to win. Mm-hmm. However, Gerard's point is that for much of human history, there were rules and regs around war. Mm-hmm. So all the way back in the, in the, in the Greeks, you know, uh, many city-states, and obviously not all the times, but many times they fought wars like a rugby match almost, mm-hmm. where they, they literally tell the opposite commander, get to this field at this time, and our phalanxes will duel it out, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and it, the point wasn't exterminating the enemy. It was like winning some kind of symbolic victory, pushing them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And even in modernity, in the 18th and 17th century, um, war was called the gentleman's war. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you'll soon, soon see why. So uh, the analogy I'd like to make is it's almost like a NBA, NBA season or an NFL season mm-hmm. where there's literally an off season for war. Mm-hmm. So there would be times where you'd be fighting, it's winter, it's getting a bit cold, and you need to go back to your, old, your home country. And you need, to do, you need to pass an enemy territory to get there. And they would literally let you. Because mm-hmm. again, it's like, right, think about how, it would, how weird it would be if, uh, you know, 
the, the Lakers sort of uh, grounded the Clippers flight from coming back to LA, right? You, you just don't do that, right? Even though it would help you as a win if they didn't show up, mm-hmm. right? There, there was, and, and war was almost like an institution where the noble elite went into. And I think one story will really hit the point home. Um, there was a British uh, colonel sharpshooter, this is in the American Revolutionary War, where he literally wrote in his diary that he was out in mourning one time and he had an opposing American general strolling through it, stro- strolling right in front of it. He didn't realize he was there. He had a whole uh, like uh, uh, a gang of, of, of sharpshooters, but he didn't kill him because he said it would be uh, something like distasteful. Mm. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And that, that opposite general turned out to be George Washington. Hmm. Um, so so they, they literally let like the top guy of the other team go because it was like ungentlemanly to kill, to like to assassinate someone. Okay. So, so, so that, that was like the intuition of war. It was this like ritualistic warfare. It would be like, like how, how unnatural would it be if you were in, in like an NCAA basketball game and you just pull out a gun and shot everyone else, right? right? That, that would be kind of like the intuition. And, um, and, you know, obviously war today is very, very different from that. Um, there are wars of utility and that is, there's still like, as the Russian Ukraine war has shown us, there, there's still international pressures, yeah. right? But but uh, Gerard thinks that when we think about wars, it's more like war of extermination that we should expect, like World War One or World War Two. So the question is, what has changed? And, and his long short answer is Napoleon, where Napoleon introduced this idea of total war. He introduced universal conscription. Uh, he introduced much more brutal methods. He introduced this idea that you know, everyone, even if you were an old man or a woman sitting at home, you should be participating in the war effort, right? Making munitions, singing songs. And it was that total form of war that transformed war. That, and this goes back to our ambivalence again. It's something like we've given up the silly rituals and the silly uh, gentlemanly or, or Greek sort of habits around war. And war has become more rational. But as a result, it's become more deadly because it's about extermination. And the other point that Gerard is going to make is that a similar thing has happened on the technology realm. So w- w- what has happened there is on the cultural landscape, but a similar thing has happened in technology with the invention of the nuke. What's unique about the nuke for Gerard isn't its singular destructive force, right? A firebombing of Tokyo killed more people than, than either of the strikes in World War II did. But what's unique about the nuke is uh, its ability to deploy, right? I, I can unleash my entire nuclear arsenal in a way, I can't just firebomb your entire country or, or my Mongol horde can't, you know, get to your place in, in under five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and so because of these two changes, he thinks both the cultural uh, 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 sort of uh, catachons, right? Catachon is this theological concept of the thing holding back the apocalypse. Or you can think about it like a chain holding back the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. apocalypse. Both the cultural catachons as well as the uh, technological catachons have been unleashed. Uh, and so, again, this is very, very brief. And again, I have another uh, two hour long episode talking just about this. Um, this is why he thinks uh, we're sort of living in the end times. Hmm. It's fascinating that, that he identified the turning point as Napoleon. Hmm. So Napoleon was one of the first uh, military leaders. There have been many in the past, but he's one that instrumentalized fiat currency to a large extent to fund military operations. Right, right, right. That's interesting. So I wonder again right. about, you know, that being kind of the corruption of money where you monopolize it and you just print it. You're basically taxing your whole citizenry. Whoever's using the money, you're printing it, you're taxing them. And so it opens up this 
this means of war financing beyond just the individual war chest. Right. Yeah. 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 You can now. Yeah. 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 Warfare. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I really, I really like that intuition. Right. Because the whole uh, stroke that Gerard is trying to point is that Napoleon did more total and extreme methods. And we were talking about universal conscription in some sense, this is the isomorphism in the realm of currency. Yes. Whereas before, you know, at the very most, you, yes. you, you borrowed from, from some banker. Here, you just create this thing and then tax everyone without their consent, right? Yes. So it's in more total form. I really like that, yeah. A universal invisible taxation and universal conscription. Right, they go hand in hand. As much funds as you can have and as many people as you can have. So stands to reason it would become as brutal as, as it did. Um, it's fascinating. And I'm too, I'm struck here too, where we were talking earlier about the, this whole siding with a little guy. Again, that book, Inventing the Individual, talks about how we reconceptualized heroism post-Christ. Mm. Pre-Christ, our idea of the hero was more Odysseus-like, you know, like he's an aristocrat. Mm. Yep. You know, big brawny adventurer, very, you know, bravado and, all, you know, uh, courage and all of these things. But then Christ comes along and is now the symbol of like the ultimate hero in a way, but he's the op- he's opposite to Odysseus and all. Right, the right, yeah, he's yeah, that's right. He's loving, he's turning the other cheek, he, um, telling the truth, etc. So, I wonder how much, because all of these instances we've had in the modern world where you know the state standing up for the little guy, it's always bullshit too, right? Like Marxism and communism, they say they're trying to protect the you know, save the working class from the uh, predations of uh, aristocrats and whatnot, but it's never true. It's just people kind of engaging in a power grab for themselves. So I don't know. I I don't know that I have a question here. It's just, it's interesting how just the ideas we have about ourselves and our, our mythologies actually changes the way we're, we're engaging with one another. And Presumably, I don't know how we got to fiat currency. I guess someone just figured out that war is expensive. We need to raise more money, and here's an easy way to do it. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, David Graeber's book Debt is, is really good on this. Um, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm going to butcher the, the, the argument. I, I don't have it off, off the top of my head, but he does make a pretty neat connection between fiat currency and war. Although I think it's reversed. I, th- I think for him, warfare and Gold is more synonymous because in warfare, the, the trustworthiness of the government is less insured. But again, uh, I haven't read that book in a while, so so I might uh, I might butcher that. Yeah, but I think, sorry, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I, I was saying, I think your intuition is fundamentally right here um, about people doing the same things, and I think that's what makes Gerard so interesting to to read, which is he gives you a logic of human nature mesis scapegoat mechanism and those are the unchanging things but he also gives you a changing historical circumstance Mm -hmm. so it allows you to see the the eternal so to speak within the flux right Mm -hmm. and i think that is a very powerful way to view humanity that 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 core were fundamentally similar but the cultural landscape has changed and the analogy i like to make is um, you know, humanity at this point in the world, and you said you wanted to talk about the 20th century, humanity would be a just launched rocket that hasn't uh, hit escape velocity yet, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, like uh, the, the rocket 
that is stationary, that would be pagan society, us, the just launch rocket, we're, we're distinctly different, right? But clearly, there's something materially different about a society that persecutes victims and a society that protects them, a society that worships tradition and a society that encourages innovation. But we're also similar in the most eerily of ways, right? The, the two rockets are still within the gravitational pull of, of, of the earth. In the same way, we are still under the gravitational pull of, of human nature. Yeah. And so uh, I think, you're, you're, again, your intuition is very on point here. You're hitting on exactly why I think Gerard is so, uh, so, so interesting and has been so fruitful to engage with. Yeah, the, the human nature is absolute in a way, it's not, or at least it doesn't change much. And it's not something we right. can do much. Or there are ebbs and flows that, that you, can, you can see within it that, that, that maybe goes through time. I don't, know, I don't know how best to put it. Maybe the way you put it was better. Yeah, well, I, don't, I mean, it just seems like it, to the extent that it's changing, it's not, we don't have a lot of say-so in it. Maybe it just takes a really long time for human nature to change if it changes at all. But the cultural and technological landscapes change all the time, right? Like, yeah, totally. I wonder how related those two are, actually, how much the cultural landscape is influenced by the technological landscape. For instance, I know that um, right. you know, on hunters and hunters and gatherers, it was considered to be morally superior to be able to go out and slay a woolly mammoth right there was this this very practical utilitarian um moral code right, that right, was built right, up right. around your food supply yeah 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 um, I see. and there's you know the moral codes associated with like chivalry and things like this that was based on the technological realities of the time that you know you had an armed knight on horseback that was kind of the martial force on the land and this is from the book the sovereign individual they make the point that the invention of gunpowder, which basically allowed a peasant to be able to kill an armed knight for 200 yards, led to the collapse of feudalism and chivalry as a moral code. It just didn't, it wasn't relevant anymore. The culture right. was relevant to the new technological reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's all really fascinating to think about because then you think certain innovations might change what we consider to be moral versus immoral. Um, That's right. You know, the the view you just described there is the um what can be termed a classical historical materialist view right mm -hmm. so a view commonly attributed to someone like marx so obviously you know across the spectrum but marx most notably this idea that our methods of production or if we want to turn that into gerardian terms our methods for containing violence fundamentally determine our sort of morality gerard's perspective i'm just thinking on my feet here so i might i might retract this i think is the opposite where he thinks what is primary is the cultural component and then technologies are engendered by certain cultures. But, you know, my position is that there's probably more of a dialectic going. It would be ridiculous to argue one or the other. Right. Um, but for him, right, his famous uh, set. So for example, it, it wasn't uh, for him, science and all the technological revolutions was engendered by Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. And it wasn't the other way around. Like it was, it was Christ's uh, revelation of truth that led to the cultural landscape, quite curiously for most people, the scientific landscape that engendered all of these technological advancements. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I don't know. I think if you push Gerard, he would say, well, you know, of course, um, when, you, when you come to more little things like chivalry, then of course, technology precedes morality. But perhaps for him, the, the great uh, moral frameworks, the moral paradigms, those are still primary and, and Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Here. Yeah, no, it's, it's, we have this 
and maybe this is our own cultural programming that we tend to look for linear causality. It's like A causes B, you know, which way right, right. causes B or B causes A. But when you look at biology and physics, there's not much of that going on. It's typically little feedback loops everywhere, right? So when I find one of these areas where I'm like, did A cause B or B cause A? What I typically end up seeing is there's kind of some reciprocal pattern between the two. Right, right, right. It's still a meaningful question, though, to ask which one is primary. Yes, right, is. right. Sure. Yeah. So, but it's very difficult to disentangle. Yeah, of course. Uh, perhaps even uh, complete, so impossible to make the the, the question right. irrelevant. But I still find it interesting to discuss. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're coming close on time here, but I can't stop today without asking you. You mentioned that Gerard gives an account on of the origins of money. Right, right. As it, I guess, through a framework of of mimesis, perhaps acquisitive mimesis. Um, yeah. Could we just touch on that a little bit? And you yeah, it's yeah. A different book, actually, as well. It, it is called "What What Is Money After All." So I, I suppose we'd be uh, I'd be robbing your listeners of a Girardian treat if we didn't touch upon that as a final topic. Um, I'll give the really quick version and I'll do another shameless plug. This would be in lecture seven, so the final lecture about about. And it's not so much an invention of money that Gerard is really interested. In. He's not interested in painting as a, you know, a genealogical, or sorry, sorry, uh, like a clear historical progression of different political economies. Um, he's really tr helping, uh, trying to help us understand contemporary capitalism, but it does touch upon uh, money. So, so I'll, I'll get to that. Gerard traces a genealogy of capitalism to gift giving. So as you probably know, uh, the Smithian conception of the historical progression, right? First it was bartering, then it was money, then it was debt and loans and gifts. That's wrong, right? Graeber actually gives a pretty convincing argument here that it's actually flipped. First, it was gift giving. And then money was invented and only in the absence of money for people who are used to money do we get bartering, like in prisoners of war camps. So, and this is quite a natural intuition that gift giving would be the dominant mode of existence in you know small tribalistic societies because after all when you're with your close friends you never say you know i'll do your spreadsheet if you walk my dog for two hours right you help your friend do short spreadsheets you help your friend walk their dogs now of course you also keep some kind of tally so if someone always keeps asking you you stop being friends with them mm -hmm. but the but i hope you get the intuition okay so it, it was it was a it was a gift giving uh, economy and Gerard thinks, thinks that there's, uh, Gerard is highlighting two very interesting things about such an economy. First, such an economy where it appears to be material aid. In many cases, it was not about that at all, but it was about ego, right? It's, it's a topic we've touched upon many times today. There's these stories of these great chiefs who throw lavish parties competing against who could give each other the best gift mm -hmm. and often squandering the very things that they aim to give purportedly for aid. It's kind of like modern philanthropy, right? Where, or some part of modern philanthropy, where it's less about the receiver than it is the giver. Mm -hmm. The second thing that Gerard uh, highlights is that, quite oddly, there usually are cultural prohibitions against rapid gift giving. So there usually needs to be a gap here, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, the intuition here is quite interesting as well, where if I'm really good friends with you, then I probably don't have to Venmo you for the dinner. Mm -hmm. But if I'm only going to meet you one time, well, we better settle that account right then and there. Right. But the other thing is that Gerard thinks because these gifts, their value is not certain. They have to, it's so easy to misconstrue who's winning and who's losing out in the deal that if the gift giving is too rapid, it could incite violence. Hmm. 
And that's why there, there needs to be a gap between the gift and counter gift. So money kind of fixes this, where money, you're confirming the value and you're cutting off the relationship. Mm. So money for Gerard is a substance that allows people to exchange much more rapidly and exchange on a much more uh, increasing dimension of things. Mm. So modern day capitalism for Gerard keeps the, the, the intuition that what appears to be material exchange isn't material exchange at all, but it, uh, how it's different from gift giving that is that there's money as a medium of exchange there mm -hmm. that sort of atomizes people, that cuts people off from relationships, but in doing so engenders much more rapid material exchange and, yeah. and commerce. Now that's fascinating because the, the intensity of exchange is proportional to how much wealth we create or, or how productive we become. So that's really interesting that um, I guess the gift economy was a low intensity exchange economy. So it's not capable. Right, right. Both in frequency as well as in terms of the, the goods exchanged. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's super fascinating. And then I wonder if things, this probably, Mimesis has to relate to the monetization of assets, I would imagine too. Like some guys wearing gold, right? As a collectible and then right, right, passing right. gold on to his son or wife as they get married as a, a means of wealth transfer across generations. It does. Please observe those families doing it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And this explains, for example, why gold is valued differently in different cultures, right? I, I believe um, when the Europeans arrived, the, the, the South Americans couldn't make sense of the degree that, that, that their lust for gold and silver um, when you look at how, what currencies were being used um, throughout different uh, pagan societies, you'd be quite surprised. Some were using literally wheels, huge wheels that you'd roll around as, as, as currencies. So yes, that, that's exactly right. And in cryptocurrencies is a you know, great example. You know, why is a dog coin <laughs> worth, right. worth, worth so much? And so, so there's, um, however, right, the fact that many cultures, if not most cultures, have converged on silver and gold as these precious things tells us it's not just mimesis, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, and, and this again goes back perhaps as a fitting place to end because I know we're a bit up on time because it, it's an isomorphism of physical and metaphysical desire, yeah. right? There are physical qualities of gold and silver that, that maybe make them interesting, but their value is clearly not just those physical qualities. It's this uh, additional social uh, aura that we've imbued upon them. Right. So fascinating to think about, but I like the distinction between metaphysical and physical because it, those are the two domains we're kind of operating within, right? It's the Darwinian yeah. preservation and the physical domain, but then there's this metaphysical S symbolic social yes, yeah. participation, et cetera. Jonathan, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, I hope we can do it again because this fantastic. <laughs> I would love to. So, yeah. Okay. I, I would love to do it again. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, great to have you. If you could please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work. Great. Um, so uh, jonathanb.com, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-B-I.com. Uh, or if you just go on YouTube and Google, uh, you know, Jonathan B. Uh, Gerard Lectures. So this uh, episode is going to be released on December 16th. Um, we released the first lecture already. Um, lecture one of seven. It's an overview of Gerard's entire theory in two hours, not unlike what we did today. Um, and then we're releasing six lectures, that one each covering uh, a core topic on Gerard. Two lectures on Gerard, uh, Gerard's psychology, one lecture on Gerard's theology, one on his uh, uh, anthropology, scapegoat mechanism, one on his comments on modernity, and the final one is on eschatology, how he thinks the world's going to end. 
Um, so that, that this will be all be released uh, within December and early January. That's super cool. I'm looking forward to, to watching that. Uh, just started the, the one you sent me earlier. So, dude, thank you so much. Talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me.